0: Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the Highlander Podcast, we continue our History of Gear series talking to Paula Crenshaw, niece to Jean Crenshaw, who founded and was the editor of Summit Magazine, along with Helen Kilness. We talk about the creation of the first monthly climbing magazine and their influences as the pioneers of the modern climbing movement. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and joining me today is Paula Crenshaw. Um, thanks for joining me. I, you know, I'll let you introduce yourself and kind of how you're connected to all of this, but um, wanted to talk about Summit Magazine today and um just such an influential um publication and and wanted to talk about it because of your work um you know actually donating your whole collection of, of summit magazines to our outdoor recreation archive here on campus and wanted to take this chance to talk with you a little bit about it and and provide some additional context to the significance of that collection and and the two women behind it. So thanks for joining me to, to talk a little bit today.
1: You're welcome. I'm Paula Crenshaw, and I'm the niece of Jean Crenshaw, who was the editor of Summit Magazine, which ran from 1955 until the early 90s, although in the um, 90s it was taken over by another company, but they ran it for 35 years.
0: That's incredible. And, and, and by they, it was, it was Jean um, and then Helen Kilness. Right. right?
1: So, so Jean Crenshaw was my aunt and her very dear friend and lifelong companion was Helen Kilness. And uh, they met in the Coast Guard during World War II where they were both radio operators. And um, later Started the magazine in 1955. Do you want a little history on how they met? And
0: absolutely, yeah, I so, would. I'd love to know. Uh, you know, some pre pre war history. Where did where did they grow up? And then, you know, how okay, they well, get involved in the in the Coast Guard? And yeah, some some context leading up to that would be great.
1: Well, Helen and Jean didn't know each other before the Coast Guard. Helen grew up. Um, on the plains of South Dakota. Uh, She went to school in a little one-room schoolhouse, um, growing up on a farm, joined the Coast Guard, where she met Jean. Jean, my aunt, was born in Los Angeles area, actually, Huntington Park. And she was the the youngest of three children. Um, My father was the middle brother, and then she had an older brother. Um they all joined the service that's kind of what people did um in the forties and they both went into Helen and Jean independently went into the Coast Guard and they were radio operators That's where they met when they got out in i believe nineteen forty six I think the the Coast Guard was in a little bit longer after the war actually ended. I'm not sure whether they were doing some final work um, after the war. When they got out in those days, there wasn't any public transportation. You couldn't just buy an airline ticket and fly back home. And they were given a small amount of money as they left and they pulled their money and they bought a motorcycle. Neither one of them rode motorcycles, but they bought a motorcycle. It was an Indian. I believe it was an Indian. Um, and they taught themselves to ride in the dealership parking lot and they rode um, both of them on a motorcycle um, and they they went back to for this was in Georgia and they rode to South Dakota and they left the motorcycle in South Dakota and then my my aunt made her way back by sort of hopping on to military flights And she made her way back to the Los Angeles area. And I don't know when it was that Helen came out and joined her in the Los Angeles area. But I know that they were both out there in California. And they were both doing work, I believe, in publishing or editing. And during this time, they both got involved with the Sierra Club. And they learned how to rock climb. So they did quite a bit of rock climbing with the Sierra Club and fell in love with just being out in the mountains and rock climbing and decided to start a magazine. They started it first in Huntington Park. And then later they moved to Big Bear, California. They found a a cabin up in Big Bear, California. It was a little forest service cabin and they moved the entire operation up there and that's where summit magazine was published was in big bear california out of this little tiny cabin and those are some of my childhood memories was going to visit my aunt at the cabin and being underfoot uh, as they were publishing and printing photos and i used to lick the envelopes and help uh you know, glue the magazines, then later staple them together. Um, And they taught me to climb up there as well. Um, The cabin was interesting. It was an old cabin um, built on these huge, huge house-sized boulders, sort of in and around the the boulders. Actually, the foundation was made of just boulders all fit together. Um, There wasn't even mortar. And part of the house was over a cave area. I don't think it was really a cave. It was sort of a cave created out of these boulders. And that was their basement. And they had their dark room and things down there. The house had some trapdoors in it. Um, it was a fascinating place to visit. And as a little kid, it was a lot of fun because I could climb all around the boulders, all around the house, and all in that area. A lot of wildlife, and um, it was fun. I was always fascinated with what they were
0: doing. Yeah, I was going to ask this later on, but what was that like for you growing up in that environment? And I assume that influenced your interests and passions moving forward. Like, how how impactful was that for you growing up in that type of an environment?
1: Well, I didn't live um, near my aunt all the time. My father was in the air force, so we traveled quite a bit. In fact, we were in Europe for quite a bit. But whenever we came back to the states, that was the first place I wanted to go was to see my aunt Jean. When I was 7 years old, she taught me to climb. And interestingly enough, when my parents died, I found an old film and I actually have a film of my aunt teaching me to climb on one of the very large boulders outside their house. The unfortunate part was that she had my my older brother belaying me. And I wasn't entirely convinced that he didn't want to kill me. But, um, but there's a picture of me at age seven climbing this boulder. And that um, instilled in me a desire to climb. And climbing was a huge part of my life for decades. Um, absolutely decades. I loved it.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Did did Jean and Helen have an interest in the outdoors before the war? Is that something that they discovered when when they started getting involved in the Sierra Club? Do you have, happen to know anything about their interests before?
1: I I would ama- I don't really know about Helen except that I know that Helen grew up on a farm. They didn't have a lot of money. Um I don't think South Dakota where they were and I'd have to look up exactly where she was from but I don't think that was near any mountains. I think actually their whole involvement with the mountains began with the Sierra Club. Mm-hmm. I mean my aunt was raised in um, Los Angeles and they were very very poor. Her father was killed when she was 7 years old. Um he had a he had an accident. So I know that they were they were poor and I doubt they got out and recreated very much with with my grandmother. So I think it was all the Sierra Club. That's what I used to hear them talk about and have found memorabilia.
0: Right, and maybe kind of along the same lines, like the state of climbing during that time. What what, uh, what was that like?
1: Well, the state of climbing it was very primitive. I mm-hmm. mean, the ropes were, what, hemp ropes, um, pitons. It was all, I mean, it was all pitons. Um, they did a lot of skiing because Big Bear was near some ski areas. Um, so they started skiing when they were, you know, very primitive cable bindings. Um, I mean, they had a they had a tremendous number of antique equipment at their home, which has all been donated to various places. Um, but even when when I started climbing, which was in the when did I start, well. I mean, I got involved with her when I was seven, but as an adult, I started climbing in 1971 and um, we we were still using pitons. I, I was a piton basher. And uh, repelling, I mean, we just, we did repels with wrapping the rope around our body. If you've never done that, it's rather painful. Um, and belays weren't, weren't done with belay devices. So you know, when people fell, you you got burned. If you um, screwed up on your rappel, it didn't end up very well. And a lot of times, you'd end up with rope burns, and bashing pitons is a lot of work.
0: Right, um, and, and and for people to understand, like this is, I mean, this is like pre, I guess the the not the peak of climbing, but I, maybe the golden age, right? It's like the the Yvonne royal age right i mean they were they were well before that that time right
1: yeah i mean they they were i think at that time ivan was still you know probably living in the ovens in yosemite um you know he he started out making pitons i worked for him at one point um in the late 70s um, yeah it was all it was all very early
0: and and what was I guess the state of of women when it comes to climbing, I think I can, I can guess, but, but what was that like for them um, getting involved in climbing at that time?
1: Well, I think one of the most remarkable things about Jean and Helen is the fact that they started this magazine during a period of time, you know, think about after the war, people got out of the war. That was the baby boomer years. The push was to get married and have children. I mean, women women had careers. There were certainly women that had careers, but but it wasn't really looked upon favorably. Um, I remember my aunt saying that she dated, but she it, she couldn't find anybody who really appreciated what she wanted to do, and she didn't want to she didn't want to get married and and be a housewife Um, in fact that was a source of friction between her and my mother because my mother was sort of the you know the quintessential 50s housewife and and extremely proud of it and her husband's sister was the complete opposite you know wanted a career and um, Jean and Helen were very independent almost to a fault they fixed everything themselves it was sort of you know we'll do it ourselves um i think because there was so much pressure you know that you you needed a man in your life in order to complete yourself
0: it Um, seems like they never married
1: and they never had children
0: right it it seemed like such an interesting time to grow up where during the war you have the rosie the riveter right it's like that message being pushed but then after the war it's a Okay, stay at home. Like this is the model. This is what you need to be. Which kind of there's it seems like in direct conflict with that image that had been pushed a little bit during the war. So I I can't even imagine what a strange time to grow up and kind of be told like this is one thing that you should be, and then everyone comes home and now this is what you need to be.
1: Well, if you think about it, all the men were off at the war, and so women stepped in to fill those roles. And then all the men came back. And I would imagine that a lot of women were displaced from those jobs. I mean, it's not even imagining it. that is what happened. A lot were displaced from those jobs. Um,
0: so, what, so, what motivated them to create, try to make a career out of climbing? I mean, that, absolutely, the passion was there. And, and they had some experience on the print side, it sounds like, from, from previous um, work. Um, when did they realize that they, they wanted to blend those two things together and try to make a go of it and make this their, their jobs?
1: Well, I think that Helen and Jean were searching. I think that they knew they wanted to do something for themselves. They wanted to be independent. They wanted to be entrepreneurs. Um, they wanted to work for themselves so that they could go climbing. I mean, that was really one of their main goals is they wanted to have the freedom to go climbing. I mean, they were sort of like the quintessential, you know, dirtbag climbers, you know, earn a little bit of money and then and then go climbing. Only, you know, that wasn't really acceptable. That was kind of something that came along in the 70s. So they had to figure out a way to make a make a job of it. Um, I don't know when their Eureka moment was, I don't remember that I ever really talked to Jean about that because I mean, when I, when I was born, that's what they were doing.
0: You know, right. already.
1: So, so I grew up with summit magazine was always in my life.
0: Right. Yeah. It, it 1955 is when that first issue came out. And and I mentioned this to you off air. I, I scanned that, that cover, um, of that first magazine. And, and I mean, it kind of hit me. It's like, this is, this is really early and this it's beautiful too. And, and it, it, I don't know, it, it really hit home to me, um, the love and care that, that went into those, like the craftsmanship, the art form. Um, you mentioned this a little bit, maybe you can expound on it a little bit more, but I mean, this is a very different time to be making a, a print publication. Um, I mean nowadays it, you know it's we have all this technology that that enables us to to you know design um maybe maybe you could share a little bit about maybe what that process was like and and it sounds like you you spent some time you know at the cabin and and saw the process and was a part of the process of of making these these magazines
1: well first of all, it was the first mountaineering magazine ever in the United States. So they had this idea, they were the first ones to bring it out. I mean, I think, you know, people are very familiar with a lot of the um, magazines that came out like in the 70s, Climb, uh, Rock and Ice, Alpinist, later. Um, But you know, really, Summit was the very first one. And the thing that made Summit somewhat unique was that they they were really the only publication that ever really dealt equally with, I mean, I said this in the, the obituary, the family that just wanted to go out and hike in a beautiful meadow, you know, with their kids. I mean, they would run an article like that alongside some major expedition that was going on like you know Everest Um, and those would be in the same magazine and given equal weight so they they appealed to you know the climbers of the day that were getting out um, doing uh, harder routes and you know there was a lot of pioneering going on in those days I know you know when I was climbing even in the 70s we, we used to think that women um, were somewhat limited by, you know, their natural body strength. And now we know, you know, look at people like Lynn Hill, and, you know, Beth Bennett, those women that, you know, just pushed the boundaries, you know, of what they were able to do and excelled in the same realm as men. But, but in the beginning, we, we didn't think women would ever be as good a climber's you know, as men. So there was a lot of pioneering going on and they were the ones that were were covering that. Um, When I was reading through their files, I would come across all kinds of submissions of materials from all kinds of people. Um, You know, there were people submitting from expeditions, there were people submitting, you know, just uh, some year review or because that's the other way. the place that a lot of innovation was taking off was in gear. I mean, nuts. You know, nuts were just amazing. What they did when they, you know, they came to be, and we started to be able to get away from piton climbing. So the magazine, I think, was you know, it was a, an evolution during a time of a lot of a lot of change where they were. They were trying to traverse the um, people hiking in the mountains with you know, the explosion of technical hard climbing uh, that was coming
0: along. I'm glad that you mentioned trying to appeal to a, a broad audience. Um, and it seems like around that same time, you have people like Jerry, uh, Jerry Cunningham you know, getting his, you know, their company off the ground in, in, uh, in Colorado. And, and that seemed to be a, a really strong focus for, for him was how do we educate everyone to be able to get outside and enjoy the outdoors and and not just the, ex, you know, the extremists. Um, you know, he, he came out with so many publications that were, you know, just how to get outside and, and creating products like the kitty carrier, right? How do you get your kids to, to be able to go outside mm-hmm. too? And, So it's similar that these, you know, there were these ideas floating around there. of Like how do we, you know, the outdoors has always, you know, been, there there has even from the early days been a focus on how do we just get people outside, whether it is doing the biggest, the baddest, the most extreme, or just getting out, you know, on a day hike, which I I think it sounds like is embodied in, in, you know, the magazine.
1: Yeah. And and in the seventies, um, I by this time, um, my father had retired from the military, and I moved to uh, Boulder, Colorado when I was 21, and that's where I lived for 34 years. So um, during that period of time, there were a lot of companies in in Boulder that were um, taking off. You know, Jerry, Bar. I don't know when Hollybar started. Uh, Frostline. You talked about Frostline kits. I remember making down booties out of a kit. Um, we all made down jackets, down booties, various things out of the kits. Even even shoes, I mean, there weren't any real climbing shoes. I mean, the early climbing shoes were, you know, were essentially, you know, these big, thick, heavy leather boots. Um, in those days, I remember running shoes. You couldn't even buy a woman's specific running shoe. I mean, you all—you had to adapt men's shoes, and if you were like me, a woman with a narrow foot, it was kind of hard. So, one of the things the magazine did was, you know, really a lot of reviews on on gear. Um, but Jean and Helen were also very sensitive to the fact that when they started the magazine, women uh, generally weren't thought of as being climbers. And you probably read in the article that um, that Katie Ives of Alpinus wrote about one guy who wrote into the editors outrage that they were, you know, promoting women, women as being climbers, you know, that could be out there and do the same things as men. And and Jean, um, her first name, actually, her first name is Mabel. If you ever called her that, she'd kill you. But um, she went by Jean, her middle name. And she even changed the spelling of that from J-E-A-N to to J-E-N-E because she thought it sounded more masculine. And Helen went by H-J, illness. And so a lot of people had no idea, no idea at all that it was these two women, you know, creating and running this magazine in the mountains.
0: It was, 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 was the there, was, was there a time where they started to, to publish their, their real names was there, do you, or, or they just continued that throughout the they entire run of the magazine? That. Oh, really?
1: I mean, people, people figured it out, mm-hmm. but, but I would say the broad audience didn't. I, I think they just assumed it was men. And, you know, when I say assumed, nobody asked. Everyone just assumed. Right. right. Would you have got two women in the 50s who would have started a mountaineering magazine and written articles on rock climbing? Right. You know, and gone rock climbing?
0: Yeah. yeah. Did uh, How did they fund this um, from the beginning? I, I know that if you look at some of the early magazines, I mean, there's ads that are, that are placed there and a lot of these early brands that we're talking about. And, and if you want to talk evolution of gear, that's kind of fun to just look at the 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 ads over time and the brands that that you know pop in and out of the out of the magazine but um and and i imagine you know people purchase subscriptions you know what did the magazines go for at that time and and how did they fund it was it ads subscriptions how did they get this off the ground
1: well first of all they were poor so this was this was a shoestring operation i mean they they bought all the equip- equipment themselves. I don't know that they got loans in those days. It's possible they did. They hardly paid anything for the cabin that they they moved into. But I think the magazines. I think in the first edition, didn't it say twenty five cents on the front of it?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, that's right.
1: I mean they were so it was all subscriptions. But I remember they they penny pinched. They definitely penny pinched where they could. And I know over the years Gene Jean and Helen were never um were never wealthy. They were sort of the masters of figuring out ways to come up with a little bit of cash. I mean, they'd sell things, they'd uh you know, sell an article or or you know, advertising. That was really a lot of it. In fact, that was one of their um relationships with Sheridan Anderson. Was he was kind of equally as poor, so they were they were an unlikely pairing in that. Um, uh, Sheridan was <laughs> drinker, smoker, carouser, and my aunts—that's uh, what I called both of them—were actually pretty religious. Um, I don't know why they were religious. Gene wasn't raised with with religion, but somewhere along the line they became religious Um, but they um, they used to overlook some of his um, jokes on them I don't know if you've seen any of the covers where they've got somebody repelling off a finger of rock which is literally a middle finger but it's disguised to look like a rock and they in sort of their innocence I suppose wouldn't even notice and they would publish these covers, and then the letters to the editor would come in. And it was a big joke. I mean, it was hilarious. They had a sense of humor. They didn't take themselves too seriously. I mean, they were climbers, after all. And climbers were, you know, generally a little bit on the fringe. Um, so they, they traversed that, that world of being conservative, religious people, You know, with the sort of sacrilegious world of climbing and and Sheridan. They couldn't afford anybody, and he was having trouble getting work elsewhere. So they had a good union. And he was always making fun of Royal Robbins, who was their, their climbing editor. Royal took himself pretty seriously
0: yeah I'm glad that you mentioned i mean just the the individuals that I guess were in their circle at that time and and anyone who knows anything about this industry will recognize the names um and we'll, we'll, I want to get into that and how they kind of got into this circle and some of these people kind of came into their orbit but um Sheridan is the way that I got acquainted with the magazine and 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 we got connected is um you know I've been on the hunt for his art. And, um, for those who don't know, um, I mean, he, he grew up in, you know, spent some time in Salt Lake and then, um, you know, wrote, you know, an illustrated, uh, a, a book called the Curtis Creek manifesto. Right. And, and that Curtis Creek actually is, is in the same Valley as our university. And so that's kind of where I, you know, I've mm-hmm. told you this story before. That's how we got acquainted is I've been on the hunt to try to track down his history, uh, to better preserve it. And try to bring some of that history to, I guess, the origin of of you know his kind of seminal work uh, in 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 the case of the the book, right? Um, so that's how we came across Summit as is, is seeing so many of his iconic um, illustrations, um, you know, covering Summit magazine, um, and those have been fun to look through. Um, so we're on the hunt for that. But you know, along those lines, what you know, you mentioned Royal. Um, how did they? How did these people come into their orbit? It was just I mean, it's a small climbing community at that time. Um, did they just kind of attract these people? Did they seek them out? How did they start to get acquainted with these people who would become, you know, the just the climbers of of the industry?
1: Well, nobody was famous in those days. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, Royal Avon, all these people were just people and there were climbers and the world was the climbing world was a lot smaller. And as, as a result, you know, the orbit that that you would find yourself in was not a very large orbit. I mean, people, people knew who was climbing where and shared information on that. And I remember even in the seventies as a female climber, if I went to Yosemite, I could find another female climber to climb with because there weren't many other female climbers. And so everybody sort of knew each other just from I think being in the same in the same orbit. And but I do think a lot of their um acquaintances with people was through the Sierra Club and then probably through their their advertising and the fact that they were the only ones running a climbing magazine in those days. And that's where people would, you know, send in their submissions. Um, I don't know how Royal Robbins became their climbing editor. Um, You know, it was probably he wanted to do that. Either he was looking for some way to, to be more involved with promoting what, what he was doing out there. And that was a good way to do it and sort of uh, keep tabs on what was happening, you know, in climbing. Um, So that was sort of a, you know, a natural relationship. And then Patagonia in the early days, uh, that's, they advertised with Summit. I mean, Summit was one of their main vehicles. In fact, when my aunt died, um you know, I heard from them just saying, "You know, thank you to to them for being such a big part of getting Patagonia started i mean Patagonia originally wasn't Patagonia it was great pacific ironworks Patagonia was the the clothing line um and then it broke off Great Pacific Ironworks, I think was bought by Ooh, what was his name? It's in Salt Lake. Peter Metcalf?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, which became Black Diamond. Yep.
1: Yeah, so Peter Metcalf bought the equipment version, Black Diamond, and then Patagonia, um, you know, took over, like, really all the clothing. And I I believe that was because of liability. They were worried about liability and climbing. I was working for Patagonia in 19... 79 and that was it they still had great pacific ironworks then i remember that because i would answer calls for questions on technical gear
0: yeah what what was your role there i mean you shared a little bit but but what what was your time like there in the early days
1: um well i knew um i had met uh avon and melinda in um the tetons they have a home up there. And I used to um, go hang out at the climbers ranch up there, just go hang out for the summer and climb and kayak. So um, we knew each other from there. And um, I remember at the end of one summer, um, Yvonne uh, offered his jobs in, um, I was married to Mike Munger at the time. And they offered us jobs in Ventura. And Mike and I went out to Ventura and we, we actually house sat. We lived in Melinda and, and Yvonne's uh, house on the beach, their little house on the beach. And um, I went to work for Patagonia and Mike went to work for Gramici, mm. who was just starting his business, which his original uh, business started. He rented I remember he had a little room and then his sewing room was a big unused walk-in like refrigerator and he had his sewing machine set up in there. It was a really small operation. He was just getting going with his clothing company. And so I was working for Patagonia and I remember we all sat in one little office. There were about four of us. Yvonne was in a desk there. There were two other people, me and i would answer calls about about gear and it would be you know a question about how something worked or how to get it repaired or stuff like that and then also did a little bit of consulting on women's specific gear for climbing um and i was a kayaker too so there were their paddle jacket that they made for climbing uh, came out of one that somebody had sewn for me that Avon saw and kind of took off on the design of that and, of course, improved it and made it wonderful. Um, but that was my association there. And then I, I left after a few months and went back to Boulder. And um, so that was Patagonia in the early days. And when I got back to Boulder, let's see, there was low alpine systems. Mm-hmm. I didn't work for them, but I did model for their first catalog because that was the other thing is if you were a climber, nobody could afford professional models or fancy catalogs. So you just went to the crags and, you know, grabbed people to model in your catalog. And we'd of course do it for some paltry little piece of gear. Um, but I do have an interesting story about Patagonia. This is kind of funny. I remember we were, we were out at a restaurant or something And Yvonne was there and a bunch of people from work. And I had on absolutely the rattiest Patagonia jacket. It was one of their their earliest pile jackets. And it had holes and everything else in it. Um, And, I I mean, I didn't have a lot of money. And I'm wearing this jacket. (laughs) And Yvonne looks over at me and he's like, you work for the company, and that's the best you can do? And I went, well, um, yeah, I mean, I can't afford a new jacket. He's like, Paula, go in the basement. Look through the seconds and find something better. So I remember I went down in the, in the, the basement, and there were boxes and boxes full of seconds. And, and of course, it was like a treasure chest down there. I mean, I'm down there and all this stuff that nobody cares about. And um, I did find a jacket, but I also started taking the boxes. And I would go, there was a flea market that was held in Ventura. And I started taking those down to the flea market and selling them for the company. And after that, they they started a second shop. But that was what we originally did with the boxes of seconds. And they sold like hotcakes.
0: So, can we say that you're the the originator of one of the the first Patagonia stores?
1: Well, but it wasn't a store then i I right. had left and right. they started one later, but I always like to think of myself as the one who originated the idea of of selling the seconds right um, but yeah, we just go down there on the pavement and lay them out on the cardboard boxes and and sell them and I remember Yvonne coming up to me and saying, well how many how?" how much are you taking and selling down there? And I went, well, have you been in the basement lately? There's tons of stuff down there. And he was just amazed. They hadn't really thought of that as you know, a source of, of revenue or or that anybody be interested in it.
0: But, wow. Yeah. No, you know. that's, that's so interesting. And, and now you have brands who, who, who do that. And, and I, it's just, you can't imagine, you know, doing that with Patagonia now or, or having access to, to seconds from from the company that just seems so foreign now with you know how much they've grown and how big they are but that's a, an yeah, interesting I time if they
1: have a second store though they might have a second store there by you know the the ironworks building
0: right yeah
1: yeah i i don't know if they do i mean their stuff is really expensive i can barely afford it now yeah it's kind of laugh
0: right um well, it's, it's nice to hear, you know, your experience in, in the industry too. And, and, um, you know, how you were influenced by growing up and, and, you know, being around summit and being influenced by, by Gene and taught by Gene, And, and it's interesting to hear your background in the industry as well. Um, you know, I, let's see, I wanted to ask a little bit more about, about the magazine itself and, and some of the history, um, you know some of the influences we we touched on a little bit i you alluded to this a little bit and correct me if I'm wrong and and I kind of feel this way too as I've been digging into the industry i've I've been surprised that I haven't heard as much about summit as i I think it should be talked about and you know you you mentioned well Patagonia you know mentioning or thanking gene and and Helen for the platform um to talk about their products early on and you could probably trace a lot of people, brands um, back to these two, and I don't know if they get the attention that they necessarily deserve. Um, even, you know, I, I think about Royal and and the, kind of this era of clean climbing, you know, coming, you know, a few decades after the the first magazine coming out, but him being the editor and maybe that being an opportunity for him to kind of refine his ideas before, you know, really putting them out there. I, I don't know, but it seems like there's so many um, brands, products, um, individuals that can trace um, back to this magazine. And and so maybe, maybe if you could speak a little bit to the, do you feel like the lasting impacts of the magazine?
1: Well, uh, I think you, you hit on it, Chase. I think they were the platform that a lot of people started with, but I can tell you what what happened in the mid seventies is they they fell out of favor. They started to be looked at as kind of a fuddy duddy magazine. I mean, here they were. Um, you know, their their print wasn't as flashy as some of the later um, magazines that came on. They were still running the articles on hiking alongside, you know, climbing articles. And now you had Climbing Magazine coming along and they were, um, they were publishing, you know, articles that really appealed more to hardcore climbers. And climbing was becoming, well, it really wasn't mainstream yet in the 70s, um, but it was starting to become um, more popular um, and kind of a cool thing to do. So I think a lot of people got to the point they didn't want to be, you know, associated with this, you know, magazine that was kind of thought to be a little too folk folksy. Um, so I, I think they they just um they were just you know a product of the times. The times changed. But they were a platform, and I think you're correct. I don't think they got as much attention later. In, in fact, I have to tell you, Chase, they've gotten more attention in the last two years than they've gotten in probably the last 20 years. In that um, suddenly, you know, I got a call several years ago, people wanted to interview them. Well, they didn't grant interviews. That was kind of one thing they always put their foot down about. Um, but they were asked uh, Alpin Katie Ives with Alpinist Magazine wanted to interview them. Someone else contacted me that wanted to interview them for a book. Um, and their response was always no. And in fact, they were always really hard to get a hold of because they had a tendency to just sort of take off into the wilderness and be incommunicado. And here they were in their, you know, eighties then, seventies. I mean, but they still did that even into the early 90s. They would disappear. It used to drive me nuts. I wouldn't be able to get a hold of them for weeks. But in order for them to grant Katie an interview, um, I had to bribe them. I told them, you know, you've got to do this interview. I really want you to do this interview. It's your last chance to really sort of say something about the magazine, and who it was, um, who you were. People are going to want to know that. And, you know, I told them that if, you know, they would um, see Katie and talk to Katie, that I would come down and visit them because they always liked it when I came down. Um, mostly because I do work for them, but no, I'm just kidding. But I would, I stack their wood and things like that. Um, but uh, they, they granted Katie the interview and they loved Katie. I mean, she's just really personable. Um, and that was really nice because it was nice to see them get a little bit of attention that they really, they really deserved.
0: Well, it seems like, um, I don't, I've, I've been just seeing this a little bit in the work that I've try, been trying to do to document oral histories and then preserve print, print publications. It's even if you have the print publication, if you don't have someone there to give it context, um, and tell the stories behind the thing or the material or the artifact, um it's in some ways like if that story doesn't continue it's as if it didn't happen it did happen right but people don't know that it happened and can't trace it back you know so so even you sharing you know this history of of patagonia saying thank you for giving us a platform or you know if if that story isn't passed on i mean it it just it's forgotten right and i i i think about you know if katie hadn't done the work that she's done to document this history um, a, a lot of people would just—I don't know. It the, the right people wouldn't get—I don't know if it's necessarily about the credit, right? But they wouldn't get the credit or be remembered as they should be remembered, and and that, that just hits home the importance of this work of of preservation of of documenting these stories. You know, you know, trying to preserve the the thing itself, but then in addition, doing what we're doing now, which is tying a story to the thing and giving it context. So. You know what you're saying just really hits home to me this the importance of you know continuing the story and and putting in a form where people can access it and appreciate it because you know i've you know on a personal note i've been trying to look into the history of, of the outdoor industry in utah and i know it's there um but in some case, in some cases it's just not accessible right you in some cases you can't find the history of certain brands in in utah It's there, but it's just not in a form that people can access it online. And so I, I, you know, I don't know if that, that makes much sense, but it really hits home to me, this idea of um, the history is there. We just need to put it into a form where people are going to find it and access it. And I think people are starting to recognize that, especially with Summit. I think people now, especially in the outdoor industry, they, they want to know where the industry came from. They want to understand, like they appreciate authenticity. And I, I can only imagine a publication like Summit existing now would be considered like an indie magazine, right? And it would be really coveted and appreciated and kind of underground almost. And I think people would flock to that rather than a very corporate kind of uh, take on the outdoor industry or climbing or magazine. It it seems like maybe that's part of why people are interested. They, They recognize it as really authentic and there's kind of a hunger for that. That was a long ramble, but... Maybe some of my my thoughts came across there.
1: No, I mean, I I think you're right. And I think that, um, I mean, if you think about it, they started the first magazine that laid the platform for magazines that came later. They were absolute pioneers there, but just being 50s women climbers who were entrepreneurs and, and did this and continued to do it for 35 years was, was really quite remarkable. Um, and, uh, really one of my fears was several years ago was that it was all going to be lost, that nobody would, would care about it. And that's why I made sure that I collected the rest of the summits that were still out there so that I could have a full collection. Um, I'm, I'm glad I, I actually had wanted to pass it on somewhere that it would be more publicly available um, to people to enjoy it. But you're right, there's, you know, the oldsters are, you know, they're, they're dying. I mean, I keep in touch with, like, Dave Rerick who did the first ascent of the diamond. Um, He's in a nursing home. He's, Going to be 86 in August, and I talk to him every few weeks. But you know, I keep thinking his voice and his stories are going to be lost. And uh, what a remarkable person he was, you know, coming through the golden age. Um, there's so many people like that.
0: Yeah, there really are, and and it's I I think we're in a time where any of us can can do that work to help at least preserve it and document it. Um, which, which I think is really powerful. It's, I, I, I look at the conversation we're having right now and it's easy enough for us to jump on a zoom call, hit record and, and, you know, we're able to do at least a little bit to, to preserve stories that, that people were going to be able to appreciate, um, you know, down the road. I, um, you know, I to to wrap up some of the, I guess some of the dates and the history, and and I I, I had a few other thoughts, but um, I guess what what do you feel like? Well, the uh, their last magazine that that Gene and and Helen published under, you know, under their ownership was eighty nine. Do you know what motivated them to to pass it on and sell it? Was it just age? Was it they were ready to go out and play more. I, what motivated them to, um, to to hand it off and, and sell the magazine?
1: I think there were a few factors. Um, I think they saw that things were coming to an end. I don't think they had many subscriptions. I think after 35 years, they were tired. Um, they didn't want to be tied to it. Um I th- I think those were yeah, I think it was time. I think it was time for them to pass it along to somebody else. I think it just it had sort of overrun its usefulness. I don't think anybody was very interested. Right. You when know, once we got into the 80s, I don't think anybody was really interested in it. I wasn't right. even interested in it. Hmm. I mean I was still interested in my aunts and went to visit him and thought they were, you know, like the coolest relatives anybody could have in their life, but, um, the magazine was pretty much over. I
0: think, right. By then. Right. And so they sell it. Um, and then it really officially kind of shut down. Last issue was 95. Is that right? Um, 95, was
1: it 95? Yeah. I th- yeah. I, mean, I think I, we've I, got sent
0: I, you all those too. Yeah, yeah. I think we've got 55 to 95. So f- a solid 40 year run. Um. I guess, um, I guess what did they think their, their impact was, I guess, how did they look back on their life and their legacy and did they ever share with you that a lot of people don't think in those terms and think of themselves as super influential, especially in the outdoor industry. A lot of, a lot of these early founders and creators don't, they don't think of themselves that way. How did they perceive themselves and their influence?
1: They, they didn't. I mean, they, I never, you know, I would hear them talk about the magazine with fondness, but I don't think that I ever heard them express that they thought that they had made this major contribution. I mean, they were very modest. You know, they're very modest women. I mean, they just, they weren't people that were doing it for fame or fortune, obviously. I mean, it was really a a means to an end. And, you know, what they wanted to do was they wanted to climb. They wanted to be in the mountains. And the things that I used to hear them say were that Summit had given them a good life. It had given them a good life. And we used to sit on the the porch of the cabin under the pine trees. and, And Helen would just say, this has been a wonderful life. I mean I've I've gotten to live here and look at the wildlife and travel the world and be in the mountains and it's all I ever wanted and that's what I got to do and I think that's what was really important to them. Um and they met a lot of people along the way that were kind to them and the ones that weren't they didn't really care about. They never they didn't take themselves too seriously. They really didn't I think a little bit of that was that generation too, you know they call that the greatest generation i mean they were most of them were modest, you know, even you know my my father, you know what would be your grandparents and great grandparents from the wars? They were modest about what they did in the war. they didn't talk about it. they just did what they did.
0: Right. And it seems like they just had a different appreciation for life, right? They'd been through these harrowing, in most cases, these harrowing experiences, right? Um, on on the biggest stage, like, you know, just something that we can't really even imagine. And then to come home and just, I probably appreciate being under, under a pine tree, right. Or, or go see the natural environment, um, probably had just such a different perspective or they do have such a different perspective.
1: Yeah, they really did. And they were they were remarkably fearless. Um, I donated some slides of theirs of the Ma- Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980. They went up there when the volcano was erupting and took photos.
0: <laughs> wow. Just yeah, truly it, fearless.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, Gene... Jean- Jean commented once to to Katie, and I don't know how true it was. She said that she didn't think she'd ever felt fear. I I don't know. You know, Jean was kind of funny. I certainly never saw her express fear or say she was afraid of anything. but, um, But, you know, they certainly didn't worry too much about where they went and the kind of danger they were exposed to. And, I mean, I'm looking at these slides, at this eruption, and I, I was completely flabbergasted. Jean was still alive by that time, but, but Jean was, um, had dementia in her last few years, and I couldn't really ask her about them except that she had always told me, whatever you do, um, make sure those Mount St. Helens slides don't go anywhere. That's like my pride and joy. And when I found them, I I realized why. I donated to the the state of Washington for their exhibit up there. And uh, they were just completely flabbergasted when they received them. So that's the kind of stuff they did. They didn't really worry about much. They just did what they liked to do
0: right well I, I should have asked this earlier it's a little kind of a nitpicky question but I, how many i guess how many public or how many um magazines did they print and and was all of this printed in their in their home at the summit house or mm-hmm. did they eventually work with printers I, you know i i didn't ask about that earlier but that, that that would be important to to cover
1: no they did it all so they had the cabin in the mountains um and they had their printing press up there. They had that little cabin and then there was a, a little outer building that they kept the printing press. And then the dark room was down in the cave of the cabin. And then they bought a house um, in Big Bear City just down the road, which really isn't a city. It's a, it's a little mountain town. Um, and they moved the press down there and they ran it out of that little house. So they did everything. All, all of it. I don't think they sent anything out ever
0: wow do you, do you know I, how many what what was their height of their the amount of issues that they would print
1: oh boy I, I don't know the answer to that chase i just remember you know this printing press was like this enormous thing that took up um, their entire garage that they had in this place and and they did it all and i i can remember times had a deadline coming, and I would be under foot and it was just work, 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 and they weren't getting much sleep, and it was day and night and If I was there, and my dad was there, and my mom was there, we all got put to work and um but I don't know what their readership was
0: wow, but it must have i mean they must have been printing thousands of these
1: yeah, I would imagine thousands I know they went all around the world um Because when we were were in Germany, we got sent issues there. And I'm I'm assuming because they had so many associations with Europeans. I had their guest book somewhere of people that had visited them at the cabin. And there were Sherpas from Nepal.
0: Really? Um, Wow. Yeah.
1: I I think I donated that to the American Alpine Club, I believe. Um, But I remember looking through their guest book and seeing... You know these Sherpa names and all kinds of people.
0: Wow, that's incredible! <laughs> I mean,
1: they, you know they were sort of a who's who that you know uh, that came up there and, and visited.
0: Wow, that's amazing! And they—how long did they live at the Summit House? Is what they what they called the the cabin, right?
1: They um, they lived there until well, the cabin was still. Theirs until let's see probably two years before Helen died, so that would have been well, basically they lived there their whole lives um and then they they moved down to their their house down in the city um and then Helen died, and we had to move Jean into a a small um home-based uh, nursing care facility in Big bear right. right and died she was there for about a year um, so but the cabin was in their possession until you know two three years before they died.
0: Wow and and Helen passed in 2018 and and Jean in, in 2019 right
1: yep, yep. yeah wow. yeah Helen was uh, 95 96 something like that. I mean, she was pretty remarkable. I I remember Helen, one of my, Helen was this skinny, tiny little woman. And like I told you, they always did everything themselves, whether it was replacing a motor in their truck or roofing their house or building something or whatever. But I remember being up there and they had some project going on. And we were, putting drywall up and I turned around and Helen who couldn't have even weighed a hundred pounds was carrying an entire sheet of drywall by herself. I mean, she was so strong.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: And I remember her, her climbing on the roof of the cabin, which on one side was a full two and a half stories down. And she's up there on the roof of this hundred year old cabin. Um, They're, Chimney had been damaged in the earthquake and she was up there taking out loose stones and carrying them in a bucket down across the roof. And my dad's saying, Helen, I'll do that. She's like, Oh no, I'm okay.
0: Truly <laughs> really fearless.
1: She was, she was out. They got a lot of snow up in big Barrett's in the mountains. And I guess she was out trying to shovel and she fell down between in a snow drift in be, where the snow was soft in between two vehicles. And she was down, you know, six feet under in this pile of snow and, you know, just quietly saying, help, when, you know, some passerby came and pulled her out. I, I mean, they just did everything themselves. I mean, it was only when people would insist on helping them, they would they would take help.
0: Right. Wow. Well, I'm I'm glad at least I, I should mention this to the American Alpine Club recognized them in 89, um, which is nice to hear for their contributions and, and everything that they had done. Interesting that that was the same time that they had sold the magazine. I don't know if those events coincided, um, but uh, it seems like more recognition is deserved and I hope that that happens and maybe we can play a small part in that.
1: Well, I really appreciate what you're doing, Chase, because I think that um, there's a lot of stories to be told, you know, from so many people that are, you know, getting getting older now. And um, Jean and Helens was a remarkable story. I've often thought they would make a good book, you know, of their life. <laughs> I thought maybe Katie might be interested in that sometime as a project.
0: I would read that book absolutely that would definitely be interesting well i mean
1: you you could actually write a book on the history of mountaineering over the last hundred years using summit i mean if you use that as a source of material it really is the history of pretty much modern day climbing through the big boom you know in the 60s 70s and 80s it covered all those years of change and the development of all these big companies if you just use that as a template for the history
0: it's all there well we hope to be that resource and you know working with you to now have the collection at the university if someone ever wanted to do that you know come to the university spend spend a you know a bunch of time digging through that collection it's it's going to be there and it'll be protected for the long term that and that's part of the motivation right keeping it in the place where if there is a researcher who ever wants to do that you know, there, there's a source where the, all those materials are being preserved. So yeah, you know, that I that's our that's hope good. that we could help with that at some point.
1: Yeah. Cause I don't think anybody else is really doing that. I think the American Alpine Club just has them stashed away. And, um, I know they have two full sets of them, but I don't think they're really doing anything with it.
0: Yeah. And, and some of that's hard to make publicly accessible that way. Um, I imagine and, and, uh, you know, with, with the university, that's just, that's our mission is, is a lot of that has to be available. We're a public institution. So um, if people want to come down into the collection, obviously you can't check them out, but um, you know, within the special collections area, people can, can look at all of them. Um, mm-hmm. So, well, uh, do you have any other, I guess, parting thoughts or thoughts on, on uh, Jean and Helen and summit and anything that we missed that, that you want to add?
1: No. Um, I think we've, we've covered it and I got to tell you a little few stories and that was fun. Remarkable women. I was very, very lucky, lucky, lucky me having in my life.
0: Well, I'm glad that you're willing to, to share them and their, their history with us. Um, and we want to do the same and pass it on and make sure that more people know about them and their, their life, their full life. Um, so, Paula, thanks again for taking time. This has been great.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Chase.
0: Thanks for listening to the Highlander Podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on Highlanderbag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cash Valley.